Take your Bibles and turn to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. As you're turning there, I also want to remind you of a very important aspect of our worship that we bring to God, and that is our offering that you so faithfully give each week. We make it possible for you to, to worship God in this way in four ways. You can mail a check to our church address. You can get an automatic draft through your bank. Very easy to set up. You can go online. Sarah's done a great job making it very simple for you. Just click on the uh, homepage, the box that says give, follow the easy instructions. Or if you're here in person, you can drop your contribution off in the box right there in the middle. But whenever I make that announcement, they're always grabbing the money right now and they're going back to count it. But you can still put it in there um, whenever you leave. Joshua, Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. So we're following in the, in the Old Testament. We're just working our way through the book of Joshua. And as we've been following their story, it's, there's a, wow, finally, finally after so long of longing and waiting to get home, they're now home in what we call the promised land. But the problem is there's some other people that have basically, you might say, moved in that are also living there and they're really evil people. You just can't, you can't have both groups there at the same time. And so the book of Joshua, a lot of Joshua, is a story of a war. It's a story of the battles of the Israelites against these people that are now living in a land named the Canaanites. And the purpose of the battle is to take back their land. And so we're just following these battles and, and we saw first of all that they attacked in the middle and they split the country in two through their, their central campaign and then for the last two weeks we went with them into their southern campaign. And so now as we step into chapter 11, we're going to go with them into their northern campaign and our question is, like what in the world do we get out of this? Why has God said, I want this in scripture, I want you to know these War stories. What do we take home from this? So I'm going to start reading kind of like more in the middle of the chapter. So let me set the stage. In, in, in the story starts in chapter 11. The kings of the north have been watching what's going on in the south. And they're getting nervous because these Israelites have just got one victory after the other. And so they all joined together. All these kings said, we're going to have to unite and form one united coalition to take on the Israelites. Because I can see that they're headed this way. And so in, in chapter 11 and verse 4, this united coalition of, of Canaanite. Troops or people are described with these words, a great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And when I read that, I envisioned the picture that you see. And I remember this. This is taken from a, a Lord of the Rings. You remember some of those battles of the just thousands and thousands thousands all that you from all as far as you can see soldiers are so intimidating and afraid and so now with the northern armies of the Canaanite people gathered together we enter into the battle of the northern campaign and begin reading in verses 6 through 11 and the Lord said to Joshua do not be afraid of them for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. 
So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as great Sidon and Misrephothimim, however you pronounce that, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. And Joshua turned back at their time and captured Hazor and struck its king with the sword. For Hazor formerly was the head of all the kingdoms. And they struck with sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And he burned Hazor with fire. And then if you keep reading, it's just, and then there was another battle just like that. And then there was another battle just like that. I'm going to let you read that in your life groups, the rest of the chapter. Last year when I was studying through Joshua, in the evenings, in some of the evenings, Karen and I were, were watching a, a television series with many episodes that told the story of the, of the Vikings in northern and central Europe. Karen has Viking heritage, so just a, a heads up. <laughs> you, you can judge us on this. But if you've watched these movies about the Vikings, it's brutal. It's bloody. And at times it's just violent. It's just like, man, it's, it's hard to watch. The Vikings were ruthless, brutal people wiping out towns and villages and, and taking these new kingdoms for themselves. And they were doing it all in the name of their religion. Their god was Odin. And they even had the belief that even if they died, they would die with honor in battle and they would go to Valhalla. And so, I would get up in the morning and I'd open my Bible and I'd be reading what I just read and I'm thinking, well man, that, that's kind of similar to what I just saw on this Viking series last night. Honestly, if you think about it, if someone were to take, not the not the crossing of the Jordan River or some of the sweet stories in Joshua, but some of these battle stories and put them into a movie, they'd have to be rated R and they would open up with a caption that says, for mature audiences only. And I get that when I'm watching a movie about Vikings. But what's really hard to swallow is when it's a story very similar about God's people following God's commands. And so it, it, it kind of just sets you back. It starts making you think, and like, how do you, how do you reconcile what we're reading here in Joshua with a God of love and compassion and the person and the character and the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament? Unbelievers look at this and they say, are you serious? The famous atheist Richard Dawkins wrote these words and I quote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. 
a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomachistic, capriciously malevolent bully. End of quote. Wow, that's a mouthful of words that we normally don't use and normally never actually are we going to use those words about God. But then you're reading this and you're thinking, well, what about that? Is God a moral monster arbitrarily commanding genocide against innocent men, women, and children? Or does God have morally sufficient reasons for what we read here in Joshua? You may not want to ask it, but you ought to ask it. Why does he say in, in, in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, and here he's saying kill. How do you reconcile this with followers of Jesus in the New Testament called peacemakers. And so this is what I called last week and this week. This is that that elephant in the room. It's like so big, so right there. You can't see it and you're trying your best not to see it. You're hoping no one else can see it. You're hoping no one's going to ask you anything about it because it just doesn't fit with our contemporary American Christian narrative. But our problem is God has said, I want this right here and I want them to see this. And so as I shared with you last week, as, uh, and last week as I was studying through this, reflecting and journaling through Joshua, I wrestled once again with this elephant in the room of Joshua and, and it led me to, to be reminded of five biblical foundational truths that helped me wrap my brain around this and reveal some incredible things to me. They all start with the P, punishment, protection, preference, provision, and proclamation. So last week, we learned that what we see here in Joshua of the Israelites against the Canaanites in these battle stories is, is God's punishment for sin. The scripture was just really clear about that. And I reminded you in, in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23 that we see the reality of this foundational doctrine of the Christian faith. The wages of sin is death. And it's very likely that our struggle here in Joshua is because we don't get it. We don't understand the severity of sin and we underestimate God's holiness and his righteousness and justice that cannot turn a blind eye to sin and that was such a big deal such a hard thing that I felt like man I need to devote one lesson to that and that's what we looked at last week and so today we're going to look at we're going to try to squeeze all these other four points into this one particular lesson so secondly, as I wrestle with these stories in Joshua, these stories reveal, we see secondly, and the kids who are taking notes, this will be your first point that I ask about. They reveal God's protection of his people. God's protection. This is what we see here. 
of his people. Long before, and this is where you really need to read the whole Bible, not just parts of it and then try to interpret it. Long before Joshua and the Israelites went to battle against the Canaanites, God, through Joshua's predecessor Moses, gave them instructions. These are instructions for going to battle. These are instructions for war. It's in Deuteronomy 20. You should read the whole chapter. We don't have time for that. But I'll read verses 16 through 18. But in the cities of these people that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes. But you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hivites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded. Why? God, why? Keep reading. This is the answer. Verse 18, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. What is the biblical answer to the elephant in the room of of Joshua? God is telling his people, you take them out or they will take you out. If you leave them, they will influence you away from your faith. And so if this was God's purpose for this, was his protection for his people. God is holy, and he has called his people to be holy. And so in the protective sense of maintaining their holiness, they had to be protected from the influence of the culture of the Canaanites. For example, I can't remember if I've shared this in this setting with you or not. Probably in conversations I have. If you go on a three-month vacation... And you come home and you discover that lo and behold, 100 rattlesnakes have moved into somehow into your house. So what are you going to do? Who are you going to call? You can't just run them out. That's not nice. That's inhospitable. But if you don't, you'll live to regret it or die to regret it. And will you say, all right, all right, this is really bad. So let's take out the males, but leave the females and the young ones. You're going to do that and then go to bed at night? You don't coexist with rattlesnakes. They've all got to go if you want to live there. And we have to understand, as I tried to share with you, the culture of the Canaanites was a toxic culture that would spread its poison if left there. They were a moral cancer in the body of humanity that needed to be removed. That's hard. But if you think about it, in World War II, the primary objective of our allied forces in Central Europe wasn't, you know what, we need to go over there and see all those people that are under the banner of the Nazi regime. Let's just go over there and take them out. That wasn't the primary objective of the allied forces. The primary objective was to protect and save millions of people living in Europe. And sadly, a war had to occur for that to happen. In Joshua, God was at work to save his people to protect their larger good of humanity. And you might think, well, that's that Old Testament stuff hidden deep away in the book of Joshua. No, it's in the New Testament as well. 
We see in the New Testament, I don't have time to go into the scriptures, God's warning and God's calling for us as his people to be careful about our close associations with those who share, who do not share a faith and who don't have the, the Christian morals that we have. Otherwise, we can be influenced away from our faith and it's happening constantly. You see today in the Christian world, Christian and churches so much not wanting to be different and stand out as unique doing everything we can to reach, to adapt, and to connect with, and to identify with the world, that in the efforts to reach the world, the world is reaching the church, and the church is losing its holy identity, and therefore its effectiveness in reaching people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. God doesn't want that to happen. He didn't want that to happen with the people in Joshua's day as well. And so we see in these stories in Joshua, God's desire to protect his people. Thirdly, as we read through these stories in Joshua, we see God's preference that all people be saved. That's really important to understand. You see, we saw last week that the actions of the Israelites against the Canaanites, this was punishment for their sin, but that's not God's preference. God's greater desire was for all to be saved. Now, let me explain that. And you've got to have to pay attention. This may get a little complicated. Helpful in understanding this, when it, it, what we see in Joshua, is you go back to Genesis chapter 15. And this is where we learn that this promise of giving the promised land, it actually originated primarily with this guy named Abraham. And he was the forefather, great, 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 great grandfather of these people, the Israelites. And so multiple times God says, I'm going to promise you this, I'm going to promise you this. And one of those things was the land. And so in Genesis 15, there's this context of God repeating and reinforcing this promise to Abraham. And he says, all right, now Abraham, you're here in the land right now, but I'm just going to let you know what's going to happen in the distant future. In the future, your family, your descendants are going to leave here, and they're going to be enslaved, he says, in a foreign land, and they're going to be there for 400 years. And we know that to be uh, the Israelites in, in Egypt. But he says, after that period of time, they're going to come back. Your people are going to come back. That's a period of time in Joshua. And so in, in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16, in that context, God says to Abraham, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Or as the NIV reads, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its, its measure. Okay, so when we're talking about the Amorites, that's just a general term for everybody that's living in Canaan, all of the Canaanites. And here God is telling Abraham, there's going to be a time when those people, the Amorites, or we call them the Canaanites, when their sin is going to reach its full measure, when it's going to be complete. It's going to reach a time when God is going to step in and say, I just can't, just can't anymore. And we saw that. We saw that earlier in the story of the Noah and the flood, a time when God had been patient and bearing with his people till finally God said, that's it. And so that time now has come in the book and the story of Joshua. For, you notice that for four generations, how long are we talking about? At least 
for centuries, likely more, God waited. You see his, there's another P, his patience. Patiently waiting, longing, extending opportunities for these people to know him and to turn to him. That's his preference. But they dug heels in, in defiance. They got worse and worse until God could bear it no longer. And so now, historically speaking, in the time of Joshua, just as God had promised Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, now more than a million, have come back to the land. The sin of the Amorites was complete, and God is using the Israelites to carry out their punishment. But here's what's, what's really important to understand. Even in that story in Joshua, God's preference. God was willing to save any and all who returned to him. We saw that with Rahab and her household. That's what he's looking for. We saw that in the, in the very intriguing story of the Gibeonites. So what's really painful, it's a reality we see in the New Testament. The vast majority say, not at all. And they dig their hills in defiance and rejection of God. And again, this is not some obscure thought that you find deep in the book of Joshua. It's a theme that we see. That's the thing, God of the Old Testament, God of the New Testament. We're just not reading our Bibles. You see the same theme as well in the New Testament. In 2 Peter chapter 3, you might consider reading this. It's another one of these, wow, this is hard. It is a very hard reading describing God's punishment upon the sin of all mankind. And you're just reading it and thinking, wow. I thought Joshua was hard to read. And in the middle, in the middle of this, we had these beautiful words. But the Lord is patient, always patient towards you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach and come to repentance. That's his preference, that all be saved. That was his preference for the people of Canaan, and that's his preference for us today. And so therefore, because of his preference, God bent over backwards in making a provision for our sin. That's the fourth point that I draw out of Joshua. How do you explain the elephant in the room in the book of Joshua? Here in Joshua, we, we see God's provision for sin in Jesus Christ. And I, I gave you a sneak peek of that last week. As I told you, if I told you a number of times before, Joshua, it was written in Hebrew, and that, that word Joshua, if we were to get its equivalent in the Greek, which is the New Testament, is the name for Jesus. Jesus is our Joshua. The whole book of Joshua, it cannot be understood by itself. Look at these stories alone. It fits into a greater meta-narrative of the Bible that is leading to and pointing to Jesus. And I told you earlier that if we were to make a movie into this, into this book, we would there'd be times when we'd turn our heads away and just not look. Because it's of the bloodshed and the violence and the brutality of the battles. Did you ever see the movie, uh, Mel Gibson's movie, The Passion of the Christ? 
men that they go out of their way to be so graphic in showing the details of what happened to Jesus. As Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, it was a slaughter. The bloodshed and the violence and brutality we see in Joshua, which was the response to the sin of mankind in that day, it reflects the bloodshed, violence, and brutality that Jesus endured on the cross for the sin of all mankind, yours and mine. God's righteousness and holiness cannot turn a blind eye to our sin, but his love, his love and his mercy made a provision. This whole book falls under this grand meta-narrative of the gospel story of Jesus Christ. That's where God is wanting to lead us. And so that leads us to point number five. The stories in Joshua call us to God's proclamation of the gospel to all the world. Now here's a couple of controversial thoughts that I'll send you home disagreeing with me, some of you at least. One of the things that people will ask as they read through the book of Joshua is they're going to go, man, yeah, but what about Jesus' teachings to, to love your enemies, to pray for them, and to turn the other cheek? And, and, and you see this. I believe that what Jesus is speaking in there in those phrases, he's speaking about our relationships as individuals, one with the other. That's the same way I approach Exodus 20, and thou shalt not kill. It's not my prerogative as an individual. Jesus, in his words, is not addressing what a government can or cannot do in punishment of a crime or a nation's response to acting against an evil threat. Jesus is speaking about us as individuals and our relationships with one another. Here we see in Joshua the story of a nation. And though the church, you could say, we are that nation. We are the new Israel. We are not a national political entity, although there are some who are suggesting that that's not who we are. We're not a national political entity called to warfare as we see in Joshua. So, just want to make sure that's clear. Our practical take-home from Joshua is not, everybody go home and get your guns and swords, let's get out in the community, and let's take out evil in our city. That's not the application from Joshua. But there is a role that we as individuals and we as a church play in combating evil, and that is proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. The church and followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to spiritual warfare we are not a passive we are not to be a passive force but using the words of Jesus in Matthew 16 18 we are called to storm the gates of hell launching a full-scale offensive campaign with the gospel of Jesus declaring war on sin and Satan to take free those who are held captive the billions and billions of people In our homes, in our nation, in our state, in our neighborhoods, in our families. I think one of the greatest elephants in the room of the church are the multitudes of people in our nation, our state, in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our families. The multitudes of people who are lost and dying without Jesus Christ. While far too many Christians and churches remain silent and apathetic to the mission of combating 
evil with the gospel of Jesus Christ, or as it is called, making disciples of all nations. This is the battle our Joshua Jesus has won by making provision on the cross. This is the battle our Joshua Jesus is calling us to in, in conquering the sin in our lives and in the lives of others with the gospel. That's good news of Jesus Christ. If there is a take home, and I believe there is, as we leave today, may we rise up with fearless courage and follow Jesus into battle. Would you stand with me as we pray? In this spirit of prayer and quietness and reflection, I just want to ask some questions and trust that the Holy Spirit will participate in speaking to us. What is it in your life that God is calling you to face with fearless courage? Is there something toxic in your life that you know it, it needs to go? Are you in a relationship that's not good for you? Are you compromising your holy identity to fit in? Are you one for whom God is patiently waiting to turn to Him or to return to Him? And place your faith in your life in Christ. Are there those in your life, those whom you know, those in the circles of where you live and work, who are lost and dying without Jesus, but you remain silent in taking the gospel of Jesus to them by your life and your words? Oh, Father, lead us as we leave this place today. Lead us into battle. And give us fearless courage to follow you. Whatever that means. Whatever that looks like. We offer this song to you now in prayer. And I want to just encourage anybody, if you've come here with a heavy heart and a heavy burden you need somebody to pray with, or you know somebody that needs you to come to them and pray with them. Let's, let's spend this time together praying with one another. Hey, I'm Eddie White, the Senior Minister for the Eastside Church of Christ. Sure want to thank you for joining us today on our podcast. I hope today's message was indeed a blessing to you. I'd like to invite you to browse our website at eastsidesprings.com to get more information or to contact us. And as always, we indeed welcome you to join us for our worship service in Colorado Springs as we seek to live out Jesus' mission of making disciples of all nations.